There are those in our party who believe that as the presiding officer over the joint session of Congress, that I possess unilateral authority to reject electoral college votes. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. That was former Vice President Mike Pence in a speech to the Federalist Society last week, delivering his most forceful rebuke yet to the man he had faithfully served for four years, Donald Trump. It may well have been Pence's finest hour. Not only did he tell Trump that he was flat out wrong in his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, but that there was, quote, no idea more un-American than Trump's persistent entreaties to him that he unilaterally toss out certified votes of electors on January 6th so that Trump could stay in power. How extraordinary was Pence's speech and why did he deliver it now? And how much impact will it have on a Republican party, which on the very same day as Pence was talking, was busy censuring Republican Congress members Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for participating in the January 6th investigation. And then we'll turn to the politics of crime when we talk to Jim Pascoe, a veteran Washington hand who serves as the executive director of the National Fraternal Order of Police on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we are joined, by the way, uh, for this uh, discussion with our Yahoo News colleague, John Ward. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on the crosstalk. I'm going to add this to my Twitter bio. Okay. So until Pence gave that speech on Friday, my most vivid memory of him as vice president was that moment, I'm sure you all remember it, Pence is sitting at a table with Trump and other members of the Trump administration, and Trump has a water bottle next to him. Trump takes the water bottle and puts it on the floor. And no sooner does he do that than Pence, sitting right next to him, takes his water bottle and puts it on the floor. That just seemed to symbolize uh, uh, what a slavish devotee Pence was the entire time he was vice president. So it was pretty surprising to see in that speech to the Federalist Society Pence get a backbone and reject not only what Trump wanted him to do at the time, but what Trump is still insisting he should have done on January 6, 2021, and toss out those electors. It was, um, as I said, pretty surprising and pretty remarkable. What's really kind of amazing to me, Mike, is that I was thinking of that same 
uh, incident with the water bottle as you were doing the, the intro, because I agree that was, that was really sort of the symbolic moment for how slavish of a, of a follower and, and devotee Mike Pence was. And it was just bizarre uh, and, and very symbolic. And so, you know, Pence, you know, I think it's, it's, it's also true that January 6th is, is why he will be in the history books. No matter what happens going forward, January, what he did on January 6th uh, will go down in history as a, a significant moment and his actions that day will go down as a, as a significant action. But he has, I would say this, he, he has up until now, I think, tried to do the, the, the minimum amount to confront Trump. Uh, it's been kind of on the down low. He's done a couple speeches. He went to the Reagan library. He did give a fairly forceful speech out there. He hasn't shy. He hasn't agreed with Trump. He hasn't shied away from disagreeing with Trump, but he has not clearly said in such stark terms as he did on Friday, Trump was wrong. Okay. And so the what question he did was un-American. Is- the question, John, is, yeah, and that un-American, calling what Trump was asking him to do un-American. So why now? Why did he deliver this speech at this it's, moment? I mean, it's an indication that, that Pence realizes that uh, he has a choice to make, and he, he it seems that he's making a choice. It's, you know, if, if, any, if the last six, seven years are any, any indication— this will be followed by Mike Pence reversing course because that has been the pattern of the last seven years as people kind of work up a little bit of nerve to confront Trump and then run away. But maybe that doesn't happen. And, you know, Henry Olson wrote a piece in the Washington Post a week ago. He made a really remarkable analogy to the story of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane on Good Friday where he prays and asks that the cup would pass from him, the pe- the cup of suffering on the cross. And Olson, who's a conservative commentator, said, you know, I'm not comparing Mike Pence to Jesus Christ here, but he's going to have to either fade away or drink the cup of becoming the person who has to confront Trump. Like, there is no alternative to that. And he he urged Pence to confront Trump in that speech. And and Pence did that. So, you know, I've heard that that Pence actually wanted to go stronger than he did and had to be reined in by staff. And I'm trying to confirm that if that's true, that indicates that Pence wants to take the fight potentially to Trump. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned I want to play a little more of that speech before we continue the discussion, because, you know, John, you mentioned, well, he could retreat and flip back. I don't know. He dug, you know, a pretty deep hole here, if that's the right metaphor, in standing up to Trump. And let's just listen to a little bit more of that speech of what came later. Look, I understand the disappointment many feel about the last election. I was on the ballot. (laughs) But whatever the future holds, I know we did our duty that day. John Quincy Adams reminds us, duty is ours. Results are God's. And the truth is, there's more at stake than our party or political fortunes. Men and women, if we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections. 
We'll lose our country. We'll lose our country. Yeah, I mean, that's those are the words of somebody who I think has counted the cost of what lies ahead. Uh, you know, that statement, the duty is ours, results are God's. That's that's Pence leaning on. I mean, I, I don't have any I have had many criticisms of Mike Pence over the years going back to his days in Congress. I have never questioned his sincerity, and I think he's a very sincere Christian. And that's a clear indication that he's he's harnessed his deep faith to, I think, what he sees as potentially the path ahead. You know, that's that's not a pleasant path for anyone going up against Trump and um, sort of the the mob vulgarity that he unleashes on and on anyone who stands in his way. Pence has the credibility, though, among many conservatives to withstand a lot of that, you know, if he were to actually wage a real political campaign against Trump for the nomination in 24, uh, you know, I think it'd be hard for Trump to discredit him. You know, it strikes me, it strikes me, John, uh, that he's, he's really put himself at this point at a kind of a crossroads here, because as Mike said, I mean, you either have to be all in if you're running against uh, Donald Trump, I mean, literally all in, or you have to completely retreat. At this point, you know, I don't see how he can kind of thread the needle as he's tried to do in the past. I recall that a while back um, uh, he referred to uh, January 6th as just another day in January. (laughs) And um, that kind of rhetoric is uh, not going to work for him going forward. And you have to wonder whether, you know, at a certain point, you know, remember, remember what he went through personally on January 6th, and remember that they were calling for him to be hanged, literally hunted down by these uh, marauders at the Capitol. And just this weekend, you know, right after Pence gave this speech, the Justice Department released a video, really chilling video, which had not been out there before, Two January 6th uh, insurrectionists uh, from Texas, uh, both of whom were later arrested in Texas, talking about Pence and whether he'd caved, i.e. caved to the Constitution, I guess. And, uh, you know, what were they saying? They're going to they're gonna drag these fucking politicians through the streets, cut their fucking heads off. You know, it went on and on and on. And, um, you know, we play a little of it. Yeah, let's. Uh, all right, yeah, we can we can just play it. Let's just go to the tape and and yeah, and listen to it. I hear the Pence just caved. No, is that true? I didn't. I'm hear here. It. I'm hearing no. reports the Pence caved. No, I'm way. telling you, if Pence caved, we're gonna drag motherfuckers through the streets. You fucking politicians are gonna get fucking drugged through the streets. Yeah. Because we're not gonna have our fucking shit stolen. We're not going to have our election, our country stolen. If we find out you politicians voted for it, we're going to drag your fucking ass through the street. Because this is the second fucking revolution. So let me find out, Pence. Let me find out myself that you treason the country. We'll fucking drag your ass too. Cut their freaking head off. Cut their head off. I mean, this is personal for Mike Pence, you know, and you have to think that uh, that at some point... He had a dark night of the soul moment and thought about, you know, how he'd be remembered in history, but also how could he live with himself if he did not stand up for his own personal principles here? I think anybody who has been in any way, you know, the target of any kind of, and and all of us probably have here, anybody who's in public life has been, has been uh, targeted to some degree uh, by people, you know, especially in the last several years as things have gotten more heated 
uh, you know, that's pretty mild what what reporters go through compared to being in Pence's position. And uh, his life was put in danger. And he's definitely I think people who, who aren't in that position, probably it's 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 hard to understand just how distressing it is just to get emails and tweets, much less have a mob, you know, <laughs> ransacking the Capitol trying to find you. So as interesting as Pence's speech was, possibly as interesting as who he gave it to. And that is yeah. the Federalist Society, which is in many ways the, the brain trust for the conservative legal movement and for the judiciary on the uh, Republican side today. Was he speaking to, and, and John, this is just a question for you, was he speaking to an audience that was ready to embrace him, that was ready to come over and ally themselves with him in terms of his interpretation? Uh, because if he can bring the, the Federalist Society and its you know, cadre of incredibly important intellectual leaders over to his position, he has a pretty powerful set of allies. Well, I mean, he has a set of allies in some respects. It's not going to help him win any nominations, I don't think. Um, but it has moral authority inside the conservative movement. I mean, the Federalist Society gets a lot of criticism for different reasons. You know, I think, however, d despite all that, a lot there were a lot of judges who were nominated through Leonard Leo's Federalist Society sort of farm system up, up into the, the federal bench who ruled, you know, against these frivolous lawsuits after the 2020 election. I saw reports that the audience uh, at the Federalist Society did give him a standing ovation, I believe, when he finished. But I think one thing in that clip to notice, I don't know if it was in the clip that we played, but, you know, I think it was. Pence is, is a smart and capable enough politician to know that, you know, he should throw into that rebuke of Trump a comment to the effect of, and Kamala Harris can't overturn the results when we beat them in 2024. So I think anytime he is criticizing uh, Trump or rebutting Trump, he's also placing himself very firmly in the lane of a Republican who wants Republicans to win elections going forward. Uh, Liz Cheney does this too, to some degree, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, the, the audience definitely applauded at that line, which I actually thought was kind of weird. I mean, I thought, I know the Federalist Society is conservative, but I didn't think it was supposed to be outright partisan Republican. So it was a little odd that they clapped for, you know, Pence saying we're going to, Republicans are going to win the next election. I'm sure it was only members of their C4 audience who clapped. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of Liz Cheney, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the very same day <laughs> that Pence was giving this speech, uh, the RNC is uh, meeting to formally censure Cheney and Kinzinger for taking part in the January 6th investigation. Now, the headline, and so what this speaks to is clearly the coming, I don't know if it's a coming war, it's, I think it's a war going on right now for the soul of the Republican Party between, you know, the base as represented by the RNC and the leadership 
which increasingly is moving in Mike Pence's direction. I noticed a number of Republican senators endorsed what Pence had to say over the weekend. Uh, you know, Barrasso, Romney, obviously, others did. But there you have the RNC. Now, I do think, and I want to get all your takes on this, that the coverage on this you know, went overboard, as it often does. The headline in the New York Times said, GOP declares January 6th attack, quote, legitimate political discourse. And that's because the censure said that um, they were, uh, the censure resolution said Cheney and Kinzinger were uh, being condemned for participating in, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. After the vote, and I'm reading from the New York, same New York Times story that has that headline, they write, party leaders rushed to clarify that language, saying it was never meant to apply to rioters who violently stormed the Capitol in Trump's name. Liz Cheney, quote, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger crossed the line, Rona McDaniel said. So, you know, there is, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, there were two events on January 6th. There was the political rally, you know, filled with all sorts of nonsense about a stolen election based on crazy conspiracy theories. But in the end, legitimate First Amendment protected activity. I shouldn't say legitimate. First Amendment protected activity, right? And therefore reasonably can be reasonably construed as political discourse. Then there was the riot. And that was clearly criminal acts. So, you know, uh, the RNC was blurring it there, but it is worth remembering that there is a distinction to be made. Are you, Mike, so completely confident that they are two distinct events and that the the one didn't incite the other? No, we of course the one incited the other. There's no question about that. We've known that for a year since the second impeachment trial, but it doesn't rise to the level of criminal incitement, as I think we've all agreed on this podcast. And, you know, we've had a year of investigations, and as I've pointed out, time after time, when we see things like the Oath Keepers uh, indictment or the indictments and the charges against all the criminals, alleged criminals who participated in the January 6th riot, we do not see evidence, or at least so far, of them any commun- getting any communications, any text messages, any emails from the people in Trump world who staged the nonsense political rally that was First Amendment protected. Okay, but again, the, the, the point that you're making is, is that as long as it's not criminal then a okay no need to investigate it no need no, to no, no. question not, it whoa, I, I, whoa, I mean whoa, okay so who's, illegitimate who's, political discourse yeah, yeah. dangerous political, political discourse. dangerous political discourse yes. that leads to actual riots okay well, I mean, by, by, by yeah. your own standard mike uh yeah. the rnc you know they, they did not live up to your own standard because they obviously they call it legitimate political discourse they no, don't call but, it they don't call they it first amendment protected but, but look but, but, but they look. say they were talking about the rally okay but look look the notion that they could put out a whatever it is you know thousand word it was a censure um, yeah censure resolution poorly the whole drafted. context here is yeah. ja- is January 6th and the and the January 6th investigation and it doesn't occur to them to condemn the violence on January 6th. 
either they are total morons, and we know well, these people, we know they're not, we know they're not total morons, or they didn't have the courage or the inclination to condemn the violence of January 6th. Then why did they, and on top why of did they instantly the do it then? Excuse because they me. saw the reaction. No, no. Hold they on saw the reaction. You, Clyman, so then why didn't they somebody, do it? Why didn't they put it in there? If, you just if, think it was an oversight? If you quote somebody, if you quote somebody, and it's a bit ambiguous about what they said, and then you go back and you oh, ask no. them, what did you mean by this? What did you mean by this? And they tell you, I didn't mean what you think I meant. I meant something else. You don't put in the headline what you think they meant when they've told you that's not what they meant. Okay, yes, Mike. I think I think we can all be we can all be media critics here, and I think I think you're right. Uh, the headline probably could have been clearer. I do not think that okay. absolves the R- I do not no, think that, that absolves the RNC. It. I, here. I thought it was shameless what they did in, Wh- in Well, the what's more shameless? What the New York Times did or what the RNC did? Well, actually, I think the New York Times headline was really damaging because it was repeated on all the cable shows, all the TV. How is it really uh, damaging? Who was really hurt by this? Who got hurt? it, it, It muddies the water in a way that has confused the reporting on the January 6th investigation. Wait, Mike, you you think it damaged who? I think it damages the media when we because, you know, look, we live the, these Republicans who did this censure and I don't agree with a word it of it. Total I just dog whistle. Clear. That censure was a total dog whistle. Yeah. yeah. Well, then why did they walk it back? But the question is, the, the, the point I'm making here is because they got their world. Out. Yeah. In their world, in their world, the January 6th committee is illegitimate because it's completely partisan it, all the members in my world i'm the Nancy queen of england Pelosi. mike well, well, let me ask you this mike what does it tell you what does it tell yeah. you about a, a a a political party apparatus that uh puts out a a a you know a long censure resolution that they know the political world is going to be all over about january 6th and they don't condemn january the violence on january 6th what does that tell you about them it means they are deaf to the um, what what happened that day, and they're just turning the other. Um, well, that's kind of the point it. of the criticism. I know, uh, but it the, is the headline not maybe could have been clearer. Look, the headline should have should have been a lot clearer. The lead should have been a lot clearer, and all the TV networks that mindlessly repeated what the RNC specifically said they were not saying was wrong. But they kind of were saying, <laughs> well, can I yeah. can I just read can I just read the actual text of the censure? One of one of the the graph in question says this, whereas representatives Cheney and Kinzinger are participating in a Democratic led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate right. political discourse. And they are both utilizing their past, yada, yada, yada. So, right. um, so what you know, they're that's talking the about there. No, what they're I, talking I, no, about there are the people who have no, been subpoenaed, who no, organized the rally. How do right? you know? Because that's what they said. That's what they said. It's not what they said. Victoria, if you don't want to believe them, that's John just read you what they said. I know. And then they said, let's, we want to clarify, we're not talking about the rioters. Right? They said that. So that's what they said. 
I think your I think your concerns are generally correct. I think in this instance, they left themselves open to the criticism. I mean, I understand your point about like they clarified it, but I think, you know, there's not a lot of I don't hear a lot of hue and cry on the right of people saying this isn't I mean, there are some people saying the headline was overblown. I talked to an RNC member today who said it was overblown, but this is also a person who said, you know, it was a horribly written censure draft. I yeah. I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. All right. But, but you know, longer term, as we've said time and again, you know, the January 6th committee has blurred the line and they've tried to pretend that everything involved in the rally is the same as the riot. And, you know, until we see the how, evidence. Wait, how do you know that, Mike? They've only held one the hearing so far. How do you know that that's actually what they've done? I mean, isn't it true that they're investigating the crime of the of the assault on the Capitol, but they're also kind of looking into the paper coup? Isn't that a legitimate thing for them to look into? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. But they ought to be a little more careful about what they are describing. Look, let's remember, as I've pointed out on this show, it was not a crime for any member of Congress to object to the certification of the election. In 2004, based on crazy conspiracy theories about Diebold, you know, and Karl Rove, 31 Democrats objected to the certification of the electors from Ohio, which would have, if they were rejected, flipped the election from George W. Bush to John carry. Right. So what the Democrats were doing in 2004 was not a crime. And the Republicans would say what we were trying to do with even was, was less what the Democrats evidence. were doing in 2004 attempting to coup. Were they were they when they object? Was it part was it part of a long term complex multimillion dollar hundred thousand person effort to conduct a coup? I, you know, it is not the same. And okay. I've said Just that before. To be sure. I've okay. said that before. I couldn't be clearer. But you have to this define. This is both sides is, at the worst. What's the crime? Uh-huh. What be specific what crime? Why do you keep saying you crime? crime? Is there a crime is? against coup? There's no anti-coup statute in the United States. Well, if you violate a federal statute, there is an insurrection act, right? Okay, and there is that. But nobody in Trump world has been charged with that, right? So, I, you know, all I'm saying is I just want us to be more careful and more succinct about what it is, the activity that we're talking about, that A, needs to be investigated and B, needs to be exposed in any case. As a rule, I agree with that. However, in this instance, I think it's, you know, you were saying earlier that there are Republican senators who have been sort of distancing themselves from Trump. And yes, and you know, a I growing saw, I saw that and a growing and I saw number. that again. I saw that again today. Todd Young was asked about the RNC censure resolution. And instead of complaining about the coverage of it, he basically said this was not legitimate political discourse. January 6th was a terrible day, et cetera, et cetera. So they're. You know, I haven't seen Todd. He's up for re-election. I haven't seen Todd. He's in Indiana, yeah. which is Pence's Well, State. it will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see whether whether uh, Pence and his remarks last week stiffens the spines of even more uh, Republicans. I think, I think that's why this Pence speech was so important, because I think it already has started to, and it will. And I think it's a moment in which... You know, the Republican Party, you know, the the traditional (laughs) branch of the Republican Party basically tries to take its party back from the crazies. We'll see. 
Are you? Yeah, I was going to say, are you predicting that, or are you no, just... No, I said okay. we'll see, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> right. All right. In any case, um, we have got a show about an entirely different subject, but just as important, the politics of crime and what impact it's having with a great guest, Jim Pasco, the executive director of the Fraternal Order of Police. So let's get to it. All right, we now have with us Jim Pasco, Executive Director of the National Fraternal Order of Police. Jim, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. So clearly, Clydeman and I have known you for years. Uh, you've been around Washington for quite some time, for years with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, now with the um, Fraternal Order of Police. I want to start out by asking you about the recent reports about this executive order that the White House was preparing on policing. Clearly, the White House has been taking heed about the soaring crime rates and uh, concerns that this could have impacts on the midterms. There was a leaked version of that executive order that came out, and you said after that that if this version of the order were signed by President Biden, it would cause a, quote, irreparable rift between Biden and the police. Why? Well, it... I had a. I used to have a boss at ATF who used to say 90% of, of getting consensus is in the presentation. And at the very front end of the document, which you've seen, uh, the, the preamble uh, or policy statement characterized the police in a manner which would lead the public to believe that uh, we were the villains of the peace, as opposed to group of hardworking individuals around the country, 800 plus thousand, uh, risking their lives every day, anonymously and uh, sometimes heroically to, to keep the country safe. With human nature being what it is, the occasional bad apple reflecting unfavorably on the entire profession. And uh, our members who have, you know, feel as though, and, and rightfully so, they've been knocked around pretty significantly over the last year or two in particular, but, but it's been a trend. They're angry, they're hurt, they're frustrated, and they're still out there every day strapping them on and, and trying, to, trying to make their communities as safe as is possible under very trying circumstances. They were going to react extraordinarily poorly to the wording and the and the nuance in that um, policy statement, and probably wouldn't even get to the exact the meat of the executive order itself. They'd be gone, and they are they are on such edge that that it's it's my firm belief that it's, it's widely held in the among the organizations that once they're gone, they're not coming back. Jim. I want to get to uh, some of the specifics in that executive order, particularly the use of uh, force standard. But before that, you used a phrase that I think is these days triggering to a lot of people, which is a few, I think you said a few bad apples. Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to ask you, you know, I, I guess you could have said that at any time in the history of policing in this country. But do you think, and does your organization believe that there is 
a problem and a problem that has gotten worse over the years in terms of police killings of unarmed uh, people of color in particular. I mean, is that, and when you say a few bad apples, do you think that the the problem has been overstated? What, what's your view of that? A little bit of both. I think the problem to a degree has been overstated. In terms of it being a problem, I don't think it's gotten any worse, but sadly, I don't think it's gotten any better. I think that there is a lot that can be done to improve the relationships between, you know, taking the broader view, the, the community and the officers who were there to serve them. But these one-on-one confrontations are always going to be a trigger point to, to a rapid deterioration of, a, of, a, of even a promising uh, return to, uh, to cooperation and, and mutual respect. So, yeah. So, but I, I do not, I don't think it's gotten worse. I, I just think it's gotten, it hasn't gotten better. And, and with the ubiquity of social media, and everybody's got a camera, everybody's got a, a phone, and, and uh, everybody has access to the internet, there, there's instant dissemination of information, not all of it accurate. But there is dissemination of information, which which exacerbates a problem that we would desperately like to see uh, solved. If I can hone in and just kind of follow up on Danny's question, it seems like at the heart of the dispute, possibly between the White House and some of the uh, law enforcement groups, lies in the suggestion that there might be changes to use of force or that there should be changes to use of force policies mm-hmm. within police departments. And that seemed to be a kind of, if you will, a flashpoint. Is that accurate? Well, first, a few kind words uh, in support of the White House and, and the way and their position and the way they've handled it in these conversations. They're hardly negotiations. We can't negotiate with the White House. The president either signs it or he doesn't. We make our, you know, we make our points and hope for the best. But they have been extraordinary. Well, you're being a little too modest about your ability to to get into the White House and to Victoria. To... <laughs> I, I appreciate that very much. Modesty is something that's seldom thrown in my direction as an attribute, but I'll take it. But in any event, they have been very gracious. They've been they've listened carefully. We've had a very frank exchange, as you're probably aware from from the recent New York Times article. The conversations that we've been involved in, primarily from our side, involved the Fraternal Order of Police and the International Association of Chiefs. And when you've got the two of us working in concert, two organizations between which there's a there's a natural dynamic tension, and we find ourselves on the same page and working collegially with the White House that has to please numerous constituencies and has deeply held beliefs on these subjects as they should, you know, there's always, as long as we're talking, there's a potential for progress. So let me get to the the question. So, which is, is there room for negotiation? Is there room for agreement by the Fraternal Order of Police to any sort of White House policy that would require revisions of use-of-force policies to reflect concerns raised by organizations like the Black Lives Matters movement? Is there any room for negotiation between the the two positions? If there is room 
for negotiation in that area, on specifically on use of force, deadly force. We have, and we've been meeting for literally for months, you know, we have a meeting later today. We have not found it yet. But as I say, as long as we continue to talk, there's hope. And uh, um, we, we will, we're not leaving the table until we're until the door is locked and we can't get in we're gonna we are going to continue to talk and and uh hopefully the the white house is of a mind and i have no reason to believe they're not well jim just one more beat on this uh, and i think we should just state what the current standard is and what was proposed in the draft executive order as i understand it under current law officers may shoot if they feel their lives or people around them are in danger. And the draft language in the EO, EO and I stress it's a draft, mm-hmm. was, uh, is that uh, they can use deadly force, quote, as a last resort when there is no reasonable alternative, in other words, only when necessary to prevent imminent and seriously bodily inj- injury or death. What's your problem with that proposed revision of the use, uh, use of force standard? It, it opens the door for questioning the officer's judgment in that split second where he or she has to make the decision as to whether or not to use deadly force. When the officer is down on the ground wrestling and, and that officer and, and the, the assailant both have their hand on the officer's weapon, there are civilians in the area and the officer, and the officer gets the gun around and, and it's shoot or don't shoot with, you know, again, no benefit of looking around to see what else might be happening, whether the cavalry's on the way or, or whether the civilians have all dispersed, has to make that decision, pulls the trigger. When you say, when you, you know, you give, put those equivocal words in there, you present the opportunity for hindsighted second guessing of the officer's action. And we do not see that as not only fair, but just in the context of, of the officer's situation being X and the reviewers being in situation Y. Jim, isn't everything uh, in the end of the day on a case-by-case basis anyway? I mean, look look at George Floyd and mm-hmm. you know his murder by the police officer Chauvin who had his had him pinned down right. with his knee everybody who saw that was horrified by it even your organization has made comments to that effect yeah. uh, and uh, you know it didn't matter what is signed in an executive order you know, People saw it. They knew this was excessive force. It was murder. The cop was convicted. Most people would agree he should have been. At the end of the day, each individual case that comes up is going to be judged on its own merits, right? And so is it really worth blowing up an effort by the White House to try to navigate a really tricky (laughs) political terrain here when it may not make that much of a difference in the end anyway. Conversely, if every case is going to be judged on its own merit, what is the problem with leaving the language the way it is? 
because the White House is trying to show that it's sensitive to the public reaction to the brutal murders and shootings of African-Americans by police officers in some departments around the country. Anyone would be outraged by, and, and the, the Chauvin case is probably the best example available right now, but anyone should be horrified by an unjust shooting of anyone by a police officer, or for that matter, by anyone else. But you can't suggest and seriously that all shootings by police officers are unjust and unwarranted. And, and our, our feeling is that all police officers, as they get up and go to work every day, knows that there's a standard there that's going to cover them in the event that they find themselves in a life-threatening situation, whether it's their lives or the lives of somebody around them, uh, they need to know that the law will cover them when they're right. Not protect them when they're wrong, but cover them when they're right. And this, the, the current 18 U.S.C. 242 and Graham v. Connor effectively do that. Didn't keep Chauvin from getting convicted. Jim, you, you also, as I understand it, ob- objected but I'm not saying you personally, but your organization uh, and I think other police organizations to language, fairly broad language in that executive order about the uh, criminal justice system, that, that there being a, a legacy of systemic racism in the criminal justice system and that uh, racial disparities and other disparities need to be eliminated. Is that right? Is that, I mean, because it, as I read it, it wasn't systemic racism in in, the, in police departments, it was broadly about the criminal justice system. Is that a problem for your organization? You know, I will tell you that, you know, that that's a longer discussion than we can have here on your, your fine podcast. But it was not a subject on which we spent a tremendous amount of time in our months of conversation. So so it's it's, a, you know, it would be an issue and it would be contentious and there'd probably be disagreement. There aren't, there aren't two or three people in Washington, D.C. that can get together and, and agree wholeheartedly on, on something like that. But, but uh, it's not something that we dwelled on or were totally hung up on. No. Something we're concerned about always, but no. It was not, not necessarily it, a deal breaker. No, not, not just not conceptually. No. There has clearly been this spike in violent crime uh, ever yes. since COVID hit in. I think uh, mm-hmm. murders are up, what, 44% from two, 2019 levels. Mm-hmm. Um, what's causing the uh, increase in violent crime in cities across the country? And what's been the impact on your members? Well... As to the as to the cause, I mean, I, I, there are a number of things that come to mind. You know, when you when you think about a problem, which is you know seemingly, although it's been it's been bubbling for quite some time, it's really reached this uh, you know unheralded levels in the last couple of years. You, you know, you you ask what's what's changed in the environment, and the big thing, of course, is COVID. You know, that has had some effect on not just how people behave and interact with one another, but on police and, and staffing and so forth, as you may be aware, an excess of 700 police officers 
uh, since the beginning of the pandemic have died of, of COVID in, in line of duty classified situations. Um, so it, and, and it, it has 700 in excess of 700. I've not heard that number, yeah. but that sounds like and, a lot, uh, yeah. it, it, it actually over that period of time, it's the single largest cause of death for line of duty, duty death for police officers. Where do you rate the uh, incredible spike in gun sales that's occurred over the last two years in terms of its contribution to the spike in the current crime rate? Well, in a country where the last really scholarly estimate of how many guns were in private hands in the United States was done around 20, 25 years ago, and the estimate was 300 million. I mean, and guns, by the way, are one of those rare products that seldom wears out. So they don't just go away. So additions to the to the universe of firearms out there, well, while, you know, it's uh, it, it would give cause to pause where firearms violence is an issue. It's hard to know how many more firearms could create a bigger problem. The real problem we've got is the willingness of individuals to obtain firearms and use them violently. And, uh, you know, there are police officers don't have the luxury, unfortunately, of going back to the root causes of problems. They're there, you know, tactically and hopefully ultimately strategically at the other end of the spectrum where they're trying ideally to prevent crime in the alternative to solving crimes. And there, so there, what the real focus is on in, 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 in policing, whether it's ATF at the federal level or state and local officers who comprise more than 90% of the law enforcement assets of the United States at the local level is first and foremost, get the trigger puller off the street. And secondarily, look for the source of the firearms to the trigger pullers in Chicago or Detroit or Washington, D.C., wherever it might be. But fire, firearms are a problem. But they're, you know, and I, I don't want to get into a, who's right and who's wrong on the firearms issue here again. You've got a very fine podcast, but we haven't got a, the millennium. So I, uh, the first and foremost, get the trigger pullers off the street. And in that sense, we endorse the Justice Department initiative of you know, surging in cities. The problem with that, and former Senator Biden, now President Biden, used to say, this is all about community-oriented policing, which is like a lawn, he'd say. You know, you you can't you can't mow your lawn, walk away for three months, and when you come back, expect the lawn to look like it looked the day you mowed it. And it's the same with community-oriented policing or with surges. You can't just parachute in, stay for three months arrest some people, see some guns, walk away and expect the problem to be solved. This is something that needs to be addressed and addressed and addressed. One thing I wanted to ask you, and since we're talking about guns here, how concerned uh, are you and, and your organization about uh, the Supreme Court expanding, significantly expanding gun rights in the, the New York State Rifle Pistol Association versus Bruin case, which would make it a lot easier to carry a concealed weapon outside of your home? There are some hurdles right now. And, you know, and that could have an impact not just in New York, but presumably in, in big cities, in particularly blue states um, around the country. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, 
and here again, I, I don't, I, I really uh, have one of the secrets of my longevity here in Washington is not getting dragged in on one side or the other of the firearms debate, notwithstanding the jobs that I've had here, trying to look at, at both sides of it. And here, the, the majority of gun owners, and I think, I think you all would agree with me, are not people who are inclined to commit crimes with them. And I, and I do have to say that people who are inclined to commit crimes with them are not particularly concerned over whether or not the Supreme Court thinks it's okay for them to stick a gun in their pocket. So, of course, it's a concern. The more guns there are on the street, from you know, the, the greater percentage of people out there who, who possess those firearms are probably going to be people that shouldn't. Um, so it's it's going to be a sub-level of concern to police. It remains to be seen how much. But the big concern is who's pulling them out and sticking them in the ear of a clerk in the 7-Eleven. So, Jim, another part of this debate is the election of all these progressive prosecutors around the yeah. country in San Francisco yeah. and New York and Philadelphia. Yeah. whose core conviction seems to be we have too many people incarcerated. They want to cut back on arrests that lead to incarceration, bail, other steps they're taking. Uh, how much is that playing into the rise in violent crime that we're seeing in many of these cities? Well, uh, there, there's a, a very strong, almost visceral feeling on the part of our members that this is a huge, huge part of the problem. You know, and it, the, way, the way they look at it is, you know, you get elected to be a prosecutor, you know, and you have a body of law that's been passed by whatever the appropriate body is in your jurisdiction, um, and those are the laws that need to be enforced. And when you're elected, you take an oath to enforce those laws and you don't get to cherry pick which ones you think are nifty and which ones you think, you know, should but be. There's prosecutorial more. discretion all the time. Prosecutors have limited resources. They have to decide what they're going to put their emphasis on and focus on. What specifically are some of these prosecutors doing that your members object to? And can you, you know, can you pinpoint, you know, specific moves that they've made that have actually had a deleterious impact? Yeah, I think that um, our Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's been, is, I believe, in his second term now, has been adamant in his, in his, um, contention that he does not need to prosecute uh, the kind of the kind of base, you know, quality of life crimes that community oriented policing and history in places like New York City and Philadelphia to a degree, Chicago, uh, were able were able to use to significantly lower their crime rates, the kind of appropriately aggressive policing that creates an environment in which violent crime, crime against persons, is far less likely to occur. And uh, he's, he's intransigent in that position, and we are equally intransigent in ours, that, that it is, it is uh, costing lives, causing a tremendous decrease in the safety of individuals in, within the city of Philadelphia, in this case, 
And it's something that needs to be addressed. Jim, can I just pop in there and say something? You said something that really kind of perked up my ears here, which is that Larry Krasner was reelected to his position. Yeah. And, and and the fact is, is that the, the people of Philadelphia voted for these policies. They voted for them twice. And the police and the, the head of the police in the city of Philadelphia are not elected. Isn't it appropriate for the police to respond to the democratically elected officials of Pennsylvania rather than to kind of fight and attempt to undermine someone who, as you point out, has been elected twice by the people who say how they want their police force and how they want their laws enforced? The superintendent of police in Philadelphia is is an at-will employee of the mayor who is also elected and also has a responsibility to the people of Philadelphia. So, you know, that's, I guess there's another argument there to be had, but it doesn't make the people any safer while we're having it. How spooked is the White House about these uh, rising crime rates? You've been dealing with them. You've been meeting with Susan Rice, the domestic policy chief at the White House. You've known President Biden for years and dealt with him. Give us your sense of how worried politically they are about this and, you know, what they're trying to having to navigate here uh, between you and the uh, your folks on the one hand and the progressive community on the other. Well, I, I think that there's a there's a level of concern there. I don't I don't I, I don't know if I'd characterize them as spooked, but they're certainly concerned. And and the conversations, understandably, that they're having with us aren't about the politics of it. They're about how to address it. And, you know, we're trying to be as helpful as we can in that context. Um, I, I think, personally, that this is a huge political problem for the administration. It would be a huge political problem for any administration in power. And, uh, and they need to move aggressively to address it as best they can. But part of the problem for a president, for an administration, for a federal you know, Justice Department and Homeland Security Department is that there's only so much they can do. As I said, 90% of the law enforcement assets are at the state and local level. You know, they can come in, they can bring federal expertise, they can bring jurisdiction, you know, and they can bring, in, in many cases, they can bring harsher sentences than, than state and local uh, law provides for. But they can't do it all by themselves. So he's got the bullet bully pulpit. He's got the surges and he's got, you know, hopefully uh, uh, an electorate who understands that he's, he or she, in this case, he uh, is doing everything he can to get it right. Back in the 90s, Bill Clinton put 100,000 cops on the streets to respond yeah. to rising crime. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you could get away with that <laughs> these days, but... Give us your take. You know, I I was uh, I was still with ATF during the '94 uh, crime bill, you know, lead up and, and and ultimate passage. And I spent every minute of, as best I can recall, of the that conference sitting there listening and watching. And the two points of the spear in that conference in '94 were Chuck Schumer, who was the chairman of the crime subcommittee in the house. And he was because Jack Brooks, the full committee chairman, the irascible Jack Brooks, wanted absolutely no part 
of the assault weapons ban or other provisions that were in that in that crime bill. And in the Senate, Joe Biden, who sent George Stephanopoulos, who came over to say, we don't have the votes, we got to back off on the assault weapons ban, sent him packing back to the White House. Victoria, you may have been in that meeting. Were you? No. But, uh, and said, no, I, I, wasn't. Don't negotiate, yeah. I don't negotiate with staff. Tell the president we got it covered, you know? And that's the kind of will we need to see today. By the way, I will point out that a couple of Sundays ago, I saw Donna Shalala, a former Clinton cabinet member and then member of Congress from, from Florida, actually suggest in one of, one of the Sunday uh, news shows that Biden push for a, a new 100,000 cops on the street uh, initiative, both for public safety, but also uh, linked to police training. I didn't hear anyone, I didn't hear the White House endorse that after she had brought it up. So, But Jim, I wanted to turn to January 6th for a moment, because yeah. as much as that was a, an assault on the Congress, it was an assault on the police. Yeah. Uh, 150 or so police officers injured, some of them really badly yeah. injured, a couple of them who subsequently committed suicide, including, I understand, one who, who you knew uh, well, yes. um, Howie uh, Good. I helped him get on the police force. Yeah. So, yeah, I would love to hear about, about that. But h- how dispiriting it is it to you that we are so polarized on this subject and the country can't seem to, I mean, the Republicans and the Democrats can't fully seem to come together on the issue of, you know, what a terrible thing happened to uh, police officers on that day. And I'll point out that while it was a minority of, of House Republicans, a full 21 members of the House of the Republican caucus would not vote to give gold medals to those uh, police officers who sacrificed so much on that day? Well, what's your reaction to that? You know, I, I was uh, I was saddened by it. I I those officers out there, you know, who were they were betrayed on a number of levels. First, they were betrayed on their leadership by their leadership on that day because they were sent out there unprepared and unknowing of the the level of force and and weren't weren't. Uh, prepared in terms of being the equipment that they went out with and the uh, the strategies that they employed to deal with the overwhelming and and, uh, and totally hostile force that, that addressed them and then after the fact were, were betrayed to a degree by by those who in effect are their city council uh, the, the Congress of the United States is their is their council. And they're the people that they look to for their training, their equipment, the leadership, and so forth that that puts them in a position to do the extraordinarily important things that they're called upon to to do. They're not just guarding people. They're guarding the ability of the the government, the people who run the heartbeat of the United States to continue to beat in stressful circumstances they were they were betrayed by the people that they were protecting and to a degree and uh, you know an awful lot of people have lost their jobs or or been you know or their careers have been ruined by by what happened that day and I, sadly but uh, i would say that uh, that uh, appropriately now as to members of congress it's it's up to their it's up to their constituencies to decide whether they acted appropriately or not. But uh, 
I'm 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 saddened and troubled by anyone who couldn't see the heroism of the cops that day and be supportive of it. When you say that they were betrayed by their leadership, what are you referring to? I'm talking about the the leadership within the department on that day who had better information on what was about to transpire or, you know, was likely to transpire than was ever conveyed to the rank and file out there on the line. Are you putting that on the Capitol Police leadership? Uh, What about the FBI, the Justice Department, the MPD, uh, uh, Washington Police Department? The Capitol Police are the, you know, principally responsible for security at the Capitol. They got, they had information. Now there were failures elsewhere, don't get me wrong, but the information, there was abundant, uh, ample information provided to the Capitol Police by intelligence sources. And the Capitol Police has its own very competent intelligence apparatus as well. So that information was available to them. It was the officers were never apprised of the potential for the kind of event that occurred that day prior to going to work, going out to whatever their assignment was on that day. And in that sense, the fact that they were overwhelmed is due in, in at least in some parts of the fact that they were unprepared for the assault. The Republican narrative on this, at least in the House, is that this is on Pelosi that she could have uh, and should have instructed that the National Guard be called in and that uh, greater measures be taken to to protect the officers. Uh, Is there any credibility to that as far as you're concerned? You know, I I have a pretty fair knowledge of how the Capitol Police worked and and work, and I I don't believe that that decision ever got beyond the Capitol Police Board, which, as you know, is comprised of the House and Senate sergeants at arms and the architect of the Capitol. But the the House and Senate sergeant at arms sitting at that point, Paul Irving in the House and Mike Stanger in the Senate, both very, very knowledgeable, experienced law enforcement officers, both had tremendous careers at the Secret Service, both retired as assistant directors. Uh, Stenger had probably more operational experience, and uh, they um, made decisions based on their perspective on the situation, which obviously they're going to have to to explain. And and uh, it pains me to say that they're both friends of mine, good friends of mine. But uh, the bottom line here is the officers on the line. Capitol Police officers, and ultimately when they came in, the well, when when Metropolitan Police and Park and others came in, they knew what was going on at that point because the horses were out of the barn. But Capitol Police, when they went to work, had no idea what was about to happen. And and people within their chain of command above them did and didn't advise them. And what do you want to see from the January 6th committee when it completes its work? Well, first, I, I think they've taken some, some very, very positive steps uh, with respect to Capitol Police leadership. I think that, that um, Tom Manger, 
has a long, long and very distinguished career in law enforcement in the D.C. area, Fairfax County, Virginia, and in Montgomery County. Is a, it is a very, not only is he a, a very experienced and thoughtful police officer, police executive, but he has a very good sense of, of the politics of, of Capitol Hill. He, he represented major cities' chiefs uh, as their president and as their as a kind of a, an ad hoc legislative uh, representative for a number of years on Capitol Hill and knows how to interact with members, make his case, remembering that he can't get out over and above the people that he reports to. He's got to convince them and he's the right guy to convince them. So I think that before I even see something out of the, the January 6th board, I know that the Capitol Police are headed in the right direction today. As to the January 6th report, I hope it will reflect on, on the lessons we hopefully have learned with respect to preparedness and willingness to, to react immediately and tactically to, to any threat to the Capitol, but more importantly, to refine the intelligence and the manner in which we apply it in a way that we can we can head it off at uh, 14th and Constitution rather than on the Capitol grounds. So, Jim, in winding down here, I want to uh, go back to where we started and ask you to make a prediction. So you're a guy, uh, Mike pointed out, you've known Joe Biden, you know, for 30 years or something. You, when it comes to policing issues, you probably know Capitol Hill better than just about anybody. So where things stand now with this executive order, what's your prediction in terms of getting an executive order, getting consensus between police organizations, uh, civil rights groups, other interested parties that both balances public safety and police reform? Is the White House going to get there? Before I do that, you know, you've, you've just said an awful a lot of awfully nice things about me, and I appreciate it very much. But I've just been sitting here for however long we've been sitting here, and you three denizens of Capitol Hill have been kicking my butt from one end of the screen to the other, so please. That's what we do on this podcast. Come on. <laughs> what, what did you think you were getting into? Did you think into? we were just going to purr the whole time? The only re the reason, we, we normally we go soft on people, because we know you're so tough and so good at what you do. We figured you could take it. <laughs> well, in any event, I think, yeah, I think the civil rights community and we haven't been dealing, you know, the White House is dealing directly with them and directly with us. But, you know, so there but the conversations are ongoing. I think there are a number of areas where progress can be made, which would be beneficial to the public that we serve and help to to improve the sense of solicitude for the welfare of every every citizen that is served, not just segments of the population. I think that's doable. Now, are there areas in which we're not going to be able to reach agreement, at least at this point? Absolutely. And we've discussed some of them today. But that doesn't mean we should quit or hang it up, because the areas that are still outstanding, some of them, are, are areas that are of great importance, great significance, and, and doable. So I think there's a, the odds are, if we just stick to what's achievable here and not get hung up on, on the red lines, that we can, we can do something that the American people 
will appreciate and that we can be proud that we were a part of developing. Jim, last question. Uh, your members in the last election endorsed Donald Trump for yep. re-election. Since then, Trump most recently has called for pardoning of everybody, all of the rioters who attacked your members on the Capitol Police Force on January 6th. Would the FOP endorse Trump again if he runs? You know, we are first and foremost an extraordinarily democratic organization. And the way we, the way our endorsement has arrived at is not by, you know, we aren't like the, uh, the AFL-CIO sitting in a boardroom and, and deciding who we're going to endorse for president and then throwing PAC money at him. Our endorsement is sent out. Uh, we we in, interview both candidates. We we do a, a report of those interview that interview those interviews to all of our members, all of them, and we also uh, uh, provide them with copies of questionnaires, which both candidates have executed in almost every instance in recorded history, and uh, then. It is up to each and every state to poll their membership. And based on that, that poll, that state's national board member comes with a directed vote to the conference. So we do, I can't tell you sitting here today who our members are going to vote for because they really, in our organization, and, and I'm unaware of any other labor organization that that gives this much latitude to their membership, there are members beside who we're going to endorse. And they won't do that for a couple more years. Well, they'll undoubtedly take guidance from their executive director uh, about how to think about these issues. I was going to say, by the way, uh, Jim, before you mentioned uh, the secret to your longevity, and if, if other things stop working for you, if you bottled that secret and sold it, you'd be a very rich man. <laughs> I could call it Pasco magic. Yeah, Pasco there you go. Magic, Pasco right. magic. Yeah. Right. And Skullduggery right. would endorse that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Jim, Pasco, thanks for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank the three of you, Victoria and Dan. Always, Michael. Take care.